0: Welcome to another episode of Nourish, Eat, Repeat. Today we have a very special guest on the episode, and we are excited to introduce you to her. Jennifer House is a registered dietitian, mother of three, author of The Parent's Guide to Baby Led Weaning, and founder of First Step Nutrition in Calgary, Alberta. Jen believes raising happy, well nourished eaters who have a healthy relationship with food doesn't have to be a battle. She specializes in picky eating and helps parents teach their kids to try new foods without yelling, tricking, or bribing. Have you heard the news? We started a brand new membership program called My Nutrition Coach, and you're invited to join. At Body Metrics, most of our clients come to us through their medical health insurance plan. Unfortunately, most insurances don't offer enough sessions to see big results. And some plans, they don't cover nutrition services at all. At Body Metrics, we are passionate about helping our clients see results and making nutrition accessible to everyone. That's why we created My Nutrition Coach, a program that offers education and accountability between one-on-one sessions and an affordable option for those without coverage. Inside the membership, you'll get access to weekly teachings, nutrition-focused goals to work on, recipes, a private community page for support, a video resource library, and an opportunity to ask questions to a real dietitian. This helpful program is available right now for only $9.99 a month, or $99 if you sign up annually. But it's important to us to make sure we're a good fit for you, so we're offering a special 30-day free trial if you sign up now. To start your free 30-day trial, simply go to bodymetricshealth.com and click on the Programs tab there you will see my nutrition coach simply click for more information and to join we can't wait to see you inside the membership Jennifer welcome to the show thanks for having me i'm happy to be here so that last line of your your bio i think is what every parent wants to know they want to they want to live with you they want you to teach them how do we teach our kids to try foods without tricking or bribing? I think that's that's the million dollar question right there.
1: Yeah, and those are definitely common traps that a lot of parents fall into we feel like it's our job to get our kids to eat right so that they grow well so that they're nourished and we get nervous and anxious if we don't think they're eating enough or not enough variety so i understand why parents default to you know maybe bribing with dessert or creating a reward sticker chart or you know asking them to eat all their vegetables but really we know from a ton of research that any pressure we put on the child actually leads to more picky eating it leads to the child eating less food and therefore weighing less so it totally backfires but that is a huge question okay so we don't pressure but what do we do then it's not necessarily an easy answer (laughs) but we'll definitely chat about that today
0: excellent so Jennifer tell us a little bit about how you got into this line of work as a fellow dietitian um, and then specifically into this niche
1: Sure. So before I had kids, I have three kids now. My eldest is sixteen. My youngest is nine. I worked at a children's hospital, so I've been working with picky eaters, so in outpatients, basically since the beginning of my career. And then I had kids, decided I want to stay home, be more flexible. Um, and I really just love that niche. You know, I feel like working with families, whether it's starting solids or picky eaters it can really change the trajectory of that child's whole life and their relationship with food. So essentially I work with the parents more so than the kids, but there's so much that the parents can do to help create that healthy relationship with food for their kids and you know have family pleasant dinners.
0: Yeah, I like you said, it's kind of a it can be a tricky area to navigate especially when the child is accepting of foods like say maybe when they're first learning to eat solids or first exploring foods. And then all of a sudden they hit like two or three. And then they're like, you know what? I'm done. I'm only going to eat brown foods or tan foods. And yeah. the parents are like, what happened? And and then maybe that's where some of that coercion comes in because it feels like a, a night and day difference, right? They were eating well. I'm a great parent too. What the heck happened? And I got to fix this.
1: Exactly. And you know what, it's actually a good sign if your child starts solids well, and they eat well for at least a little while, because then that indicates there's no real underlying cause for um, the picky eating, most likely, right? They don't have oral motor issues, chewing or swallowing. Um, You know, certain things can develop that can lead to picky eating, whether you know, it's low iron. um, But most often for kids at that age, it's a normal developmental stage because they learn to say no, they want to exert their independence. Um, They become, when they start to walk around, you know, 18 months to two years, they become a little more fearful of new things and new foods, which is called neophobia and they start to grow less. So the growth rate slows down. So maybe they actually do need less, you know, a little bit less food than they did before. And that can make parents anxious. But normally, it's just a normal developmental stage that lots of kids, not all kids, but lots will outgrow by about age five. That's good to know,
0: right? But those, if you don't have that person coming alongside of you to say this is normal, it can be really, a really anxious period. And then I'm assuming the anxiety of the parent is then transferring over to the child.
1: Yeah, exactly. And then that leads to both the parent and the child coming to the table anxious. And we know that when we have those stress hormones flowing like cortisol, it actually dulls our appetite. So they come to the table, you know, the appetite is gone. Everybody's stressed out. It becomes a battle and a place where nobody wants to be. So we definitely try and avoid that.
0: Yeah. So what do you think... I mean, I know you mentioned a couple things earlier, but what do you think are the main reasons why kids become picky eaters?
1: There are so many reasons. So beyond that developmental stage, um, I briefly mentioned oral motor issues. So the child might have difficulty moving food around in their mouth. Maybe it's a weak bite, tongue, cheek muscles, and they could have a tongue tie, for example. Um, They could have difficulty breathing. So I've seen enlarged tonsils in some kids. So if your child um, snores at night or is always a mouth breather, that might be an indication they don't breathe or get in as much oxygen as they should, which makes it difficult to eat. So if you think that might be a problem, it's a great idea to see um, an airway-centric dentist or orthodontist. There could be a physical pain too. So if a child gets if it hurts when they eat, whether it's from cavities in their teeth, or maybe constipation, reflux, allergies, then that pain can override hunger. So they become conditioned not to eat, essentially. And low appetite can be linked to nutrient deficiencies as well. So low iron, for example, this was something I ran into with my daughter, when she was four years old, her hair was quite thin and falling out. And I'm like, does she have celiac disease or something like that so I took her for a blood test and she had low iron which is um occurs in about 10 percent of of kids so it's pretty common and it can lead to low appetite common to pick eaters right because they don't eat a lot of meat probably don't get a lot of sources of iron um and then I also briefly mentioned sensory sensitivity because eating is actually the most difficult sensory activity that we do. It uses all eight of our sensory systems from touch to sight, to sound, to smell, to taste. And we can be over-responsive or kind of extra sensitive or under-responsive, so less sensitive in one or more of these senses that can make it just difficult to eat. And then the final reason I I see pick eating a lot is because of that broken division of responsibility at home. And that was a concept created by Ellen Satter where parents have certain roles in feeding, kids have certain roles in eating. Um, So if there are struggles basically around the table, right, like pressuring kids to eat or they don't have a schedule, for example, uh, then they quite quickly can can turn into pick eaters. Which is easy to change, right? That's probably the easiest to change—that broken division of responsibility because it's just behavioral. Um, so that's usually where where I start with parents. Once we have, you know, made sure the child has good iron status, they can breathe, they can chew—all of those underlying reasons.
0: So I know what you mean by division of responsibility, but some of our listeners may not. So can you start with explaining what what that means exactly?
1: For sure. So parents' roles in feeding their child are where the child eats, what and when. So for the where, ideally, it's at the family table. We know there's so many benefits, especially to adolescents, to have having those family meals. And even in the young kids, they learn to eat by modeling. Um, And we want them to be in a supportive seat as well. So many toddlers or young kids don't have their feet touching the floor or on a footrest, so we want to make sure the chair at the table has a footrest so that they're physically supported, makes it a lot more comfortable and easier for them to eat. So we're responsible for the where, we're responsible for the when, and that's I more ideally, you know, structured meals and snack times rather than Kids would prefer to snack, right? Snack food's easy, it's tasty. They'd like to eat goldfish crackers all day long. And then of course, they never really experience hunger or fullness. So when they come to the table, they're not hungry for dinner. So we want to create a little bit of space between um, eating opportunities so they have a chance to build up that appetite. And then we're also responsible for what the child's offered to eat. And ideally, this is, you know, family meals, everybody's offered the same food, we try to avoid becoming that short order cook. But we want to make sure that there's something on the table that at least every child can comfortably eat. Some people call this a safe food, even if it's like rice or cucumbers, just something that they can eat that the whole family is offered. And then the child is responsible for if they eat or how much they eat. And the parent often tries to take over this role where they're trying to get their child to eat more or less than they actually want to but children are very intuitive eaters and we want them to be able to keep that skill their appetite varies a lot unlike adults and it's normal so we put the food down on the table and then at that point we can step back and know it's totally their job to decide if they want you know one bite or three servings without any kind of pressure or restriction
0: yeah I mean how many adults I mean, I probably work with more adults than maybe you do at this stage, but, you know, that's actually people will come to me. Can you teach me how to become an intuitive eater? Mm -hmm. And it's just so interesting because we had that natural born tendency to eat intuitively. Somehow along the way, we got conditioned through poor habits or just we didn't have that modeling growing up. Uh, Or we were told because, you know, we're chronic dieters, how we should be eating and what it should look like that we've lost touch with that intuitive part. So we want to celebrate that in our children and foster that so that they can become intuitive adult eaters as well.
1: Absolutely. And sometimes the parent may need to do a little bit of work in themselves, too, because it's hard to trust our kids appetite if we don't trust our own right or trust their body if we don't trust our own body. And kids definitely pick up on that, you know, for dieting or eating a certain way. So, of course, they're always watching us. Um, (laughs) So we're trying to become good role models. And like you said, for a lot of people, there's a lot of history there, whether it's diet culture, um, you know, maybe they grew up in a family that that was really weight centric, for example. So sometimes parents have to relearn that for themselves um, before they can really you know, create that healthy food relationship in their whole family.
0: Yeah, I agree. I agree. So you also mentioned sensory issues. So I will notice that um, I will have parents that come to our office. um, They may have children um, on the spectrum or with certain sensory issues. Why is food a consistent challenge for this group of, of kiddos?
1: Yeah, that can definitely be the case. And, you know, often for a sensory sensitive child, they will have, it will run throughout their whole day, right? Maybe they don't like tags on their clothes. Maybe they don't like um, getting their hands dirty at recess. But when they come to the table, they have to use all of their senses. So they have to look at the food, they have to smell the food, they have to taste the food. They have to hear the food when they're chewing. So it really involves all of our senses. So it can be very overwhelming especially if the atmosphere is overwhelming. So that's something we try and simplify too is mealtime atmosphere. So you know, if a child is visually over or sensitive to lots of things in their sight line, maybe we dim the lights, maybe we try and get rid of the clutter. Um, maybe we have just a very simple placemat instead of one with you know multiple characters on it, for example. So just eating involves all of our senses and it can definitely be um, quite overwhelming.
0: So is that why they may have a preference to soft foods versus crunchy foods, because that takes out one of the senses of hearing.
1: Yeah, exactly. So kids, um, especially extreme pick eaters, tend to prefer a minimal number of foods and the same foods, and they're often processed foods. And one reason for that is because it's the same sensory experience every single time, right? The food looks the same, it tastes the same, it sounds the same every single time. So that's comfortable for them. You know, some kids, especially if they're on the spectrum, will not accept the food, if it, even if it's the same food, like in a different container, or if it's a goldfish cracker and it has a tail missing, because they might consider that like a totally new food.
0: So are there ways to then bridge that gap between, you know, eating out of one container versus another or starting to introduce new foods? I guess that's where your specialty comes in.
1: Yeah, and there's a lot of different steps and um, methods you could use. I tend to teach uh, both food chaining as well as SOS, which is a sequential oral sensory program created by Dr. K. Toomey for kids who are sensory sensitive. And that basically revolves around playing with food. So you may play games um, to get comfortable To even looking at the food for the child, you know, maybe you're passing the plate back and forth between parents at the table and then you're getting comfortable to have them um, smell the food so you can play games to smell different foods and then um, tasting the food touching the food so there's a lot of steps to eating. K to me has a 32 step hierarchy to eating. So for some kids, it's not as simple as just eating the food, they need to start with um, getting comfortable. So playing those games and making it fun with just looking at the food, working all the way up to actually chewing and swallowing and eating it.
0: Yeah, so I'm just I'm trying to think of, like, just my own experience with, with kids that are into my office, or just my own children and self and their experience um, do you find that it's helpful to do that play time at the meal itself, or is that done outside of the meal?
1: Um, eventually, you can work it into meal, but I think it's better to start outside of a meal just because for most kids, um, you know, depending on the family, they, again, are nervous to come to the table, they're stressed, they think they're going to be forced to eat. So we want it to be a positive experience. So it can just be a separate, total separate play session outside of a meal. Um, and ideally, you have a health professional, sometimes it's an occupational therapist or a speech language pathologist or dietitian to kind of guide you through the through the program. Once we know your child and you know the foods they, they like, kind of start these games with the foods they like to get them comfortable with it, you know, maybe it's songs, um, and then work up to goal foods, usually by making just, you know, small changes in in the food. Okay.
0: So can you walk us through an example of what this would look like? You know, if you have a parent that, you know, has these either sensory issues or just a child who is just extremely picky and has their preferences, what would a food, what would food chaining look like?
1: Food chaining? Okay. So food chaining um, is similar Idea to SOS where we're trying new foods with slight changes. So we start with the goal food and we start with a familiar food and link those foods by a sensory property. So for example, if your child really likes blueberry Pop-Tarts and maybe we want them, our goal food might be blueberries. So we start with a blueberry uh, Pop-Tart and then we think of a food that the child um, might consider similar, but there would be slight, slight differences in it. So maybe first of all, we try different flavors of Pop-Tarts, for example, or different brands of Pop-Tarts, for example, and you might need to go slowly that slowly with some kids. Um, I've done food chains with chicken nuggets, for example, where the first step is like cutting the chicken nugget in half. So basically you make small changes to that food until it's accepted. And then you can switch to a different food, which either has a similar color or it has a similar taste or it has a similar um like temperature, for example, and you make small changes until you get to blueberries. So maybe we add in there like a blueberry fruit roll-up. Maybe we add in there um, like a blueberry smoothie. And then before we get to the fresh blueberries, we'd probably add in like frozen blueberries or freeze-dried blueberries because those are actually easier to eat sensory-wise. If you think of eating like a frozen blueberry, it's pretty much the same texture, every blueberry and every bite. Whereas a fresh blueberry is actually quite hard because you might get one with like a crunchy outer and juicy inner. You might get one that's all mushy. You might get one that's a little sour. So it's quite a different experience with every blueberry. So we just link slowly through different blueberry flavored foods um, all the way to blueberries. And this could could, you know, take months. And maybe you never get to the fresh blueberries maybe your child likes frozen or freeze-dried blueberries and you're happy with that <laughs> and yeah. yeah so it's a different um, for every child you know depending on the foods they eat and their goal foods but that's would be a brief example of how you'd use food chaining
0: all right and how would how would that look with the sos technique given the same thing say the gold food is a blueberry
1: sure with the SOS program. So there's one program for underage six and one for overage six. So maybe I'll um, chat about their food explorer program which is for overage six because the kids are a little more cognitively developed. They're interested in becoming scientists and exploring foods. So we have um, a handout where we mark down everything as a parent that the child's saying and we have some blueberries there and we say, okay, you know, what does this look like to you? And they describe it, they say, well, it's round or it's blue. So we start with just looking at it and then we could get them to smell it. Okay. What does this blueberry smell like? And then they tell us what it smells like. And we write that down. What does it feel like? So they can touch it. They can mush it. What does it feel like when you write that down? Um, what does it taste like? So maybe they just start with like a little snake taste. So they lick it with their tongue. And if they're comfortable actually chewing and swallowing it, they let us know what it, tastes like and what it sounds like when they're chewing it and you may not get to that final step we never want to force a child again we want them to kind of be interested and engaged in this process and leading it so um yeah you just take them through exploring that food through all the different senses
0: so when you have a child though that is anti even putting it to their mouth like i remember Mm -hmm. i I had a child one time who was distorting (laughs) his face so much as he was bringing the food up to his lips. And I actually was like, hold on, let's, let's just take a pause for a second. What are the chances you are actually going to accept this food when you're contorting your face as you're bringing the food to your mouth? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, he's like, probably not very high. I'm like, probably not high at all. Right. Cause you're already making an assumption. How do we even, get an older child to be in a position to be accepting of a food when they're just, they're, they've got, they're, they're stubborn. They've got their preferences and their thoughts. How do we help them navigate through this?
1: Yeah. That's hard. Um, One good thing about working with the older children is they tend to become a little more self motivated, and they need to become self motivated, right, they want to go away to camp, they want to be able to go to their friend's house and eat pizza. So they want to be like their peers. So as they get older, they tend to be a little more self motivated. Um, We can help them by bringing them into the process. So having them help create a food chain for themselves. And two, knowing that maybe they never have to eat blueberries, for example, right? Like they don't have to eat all foods. We're all going to have some foods we don't like. Um, And we can ask them too, how could we make this easier for you to eat? Maybe they want it in a different form or cooked a different way or with dip or with sprinkles or, you know, all of that is okay too.
0: Yeah. I still remember my mom pouring applesauce on my brother's green beans because that was the only way he would eat them. And she was like, I don't care. Like if if you need applesauce on your green beans, we're going to pour applesauce on them, whatever it takes for you to eat them. But I remember, you know, him basically sitting at the table and it was just a a battle of wills at that point. It was eat your green beans. I'm not eating them. I don't like them. And you have to eat something. So, um, but you're right. It's, It's important to to honor their preferences as well, as well. And so maybe not driving home, they have to eat blueberries, like, okay, would you be open to strawberries instead? And maybe food chaining from there, if that felt more safe for them.
1: Yeah, for sure. And I'd be interested to know if your brother likes beans today. (laughs) He doesn't, he won't eat them at all. And there uh, yeah, been studies on this of adults, and they tend not to like the foods that they're forced to eat as a child. Not that we wouldn't like them now if we tried them in different ways, maybe we would, but we just have so many negative memories associated with that food that, that we just don't, don't go near it. So maybe that's another motivator for parents, right? If you really want to get your kids to eat broccoli, well, maybe you can do it for a couple years, but for the rest of their life, <laughs> they're going to choose not to eat that.
0: That's true. That's a good point. So I want you to speak a little bit about the the dynamic of when you have a child with such strong preferences, and then you're also trying to feed other members of the family and not let that child's preferences infiltrate some of your other kids. And, you know, because like, well, if if Johnny doesn't need to eat his green beans, then I'm not eating mine. And how does a parent navigate their way through a family meal when you have such strong opinions? Mm Mm-hmm.
1: Well kids like reactions from us so I in that case specific case if the siblings don't want to eat their green beans because their brother is being a bad influence (laughs) I would I would say okay right you don't have to eat your green beans and then maybe they'll ignore the beans for a minute or two but they'll probably you know go back to them maybe not that meal but maybe the next day or the next week and it doesn't become that battle but with children with different preferences I think that's when it's important to try and have you know one or two foods on the table that even the the pickiest eater can have that way you're not making them a whole entirely different meal and the other kids say hey why can't I have that too right like why can't I have cereal or macaroni and cheese um, they all get to choose from the foods that are on the table it's all the same foods and you know everybody can have something that they can fill up on if they're hungry without having to branch out and try something new if it you know that makes them really anxious.
0: Mm -hmm. So do you recommend eating more family style so that everybody can choose what feels best to them?
1: Yeah, I think family style is, is great. So when all the food choices are in the middle of the table and bowls and the kids can decide what to put on their own plate, because when we pre plate the meals and put it in front of them, (laughs) we probably all experience this where they go, like, they don't maybe like one of the foods, they're, they're like, ew, gross. And they run away from the table. So when they're allowed to choose what goes on their plate, they like that autonomy and they like that control. So it gives them a little bit of that choice and they can put what they want on their plate. Um, Some families like a learning plate as well. So if the child doesn't want to eat beans, for example, they can put a bean on their learning plate and just look at it and do whatever they want with it. For some kids that would cause a bad reaction, right? Maybe they have tantrum because they just don't like looking at the beans. So in that case, we're not going to use a learning plate, but, but some, for some families that works.
0: Okay. Yeah. I just, I know we have a lot of kids as well. So I just remember the dynamic of trying to get everybody to, to want to eat a meal. I mean, when we have five kids, so once you get to the point where you're outnumbered, you're just like, Logistically, I can't be making all these meals. So, right. you know, this is what we're having. Eat it, don't eat it. It really doesn't matter to me. We're not going to mm-hmm. eat cereal as a replacement. So it is this or it's it's nothing. And like you said, that by not creating a reaction, mm-hmm. they were like, oh, I, I this isn't a big deal to her if I don't eat. Right. And I'm actually yeah. really
1: hungry. So mm-hmm. I'm going to choose something or at least be willing to try. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And maybe that's one of the gifts of having so many children is you don't have the option to micromanage them and what they're eating and how much they're eating, which is actually a good thing. Yes.
0: Oh, I absolutely think it is. It's the reason why I think my kids all choose a variety of foods to this day because my, my families with smaller number of children find themselves catering because they can like, you know, it's not a big deal just to make one extra meal where I'm not. I couldn't make five extra meals it just wasn't possible um so i understand where parents are coming from i remember i had a uh, parent one time who's he had twins and they only ate chicken nuggets and mac and cheese and he was adamant about not having his his children starve at night and so if that's he would make a dinner but if they refused it which they did He's like, I'm not going to argue with them. I would rather have them be fed than, than be hungry. And I don't know if there were some of his own issues growing up and food security, which was playing into that. But, you know, at some point I'm, I'm not going to argue with this parent. He's going to make the decision that he thinks is right for, for his family. But at the same time, I'm like, Oh, because it was really only chicken nuggets and mac and cheese. And that is what they ate every single night for dinner. Um, yeah, and
1: it's hard to know if they did that because they knew they could get away with it, or if there was some, you know, underlying reason why they could only physically comfortably eat these two foods, but growth is a priority, right? Um, so in those extremely picky kids, I usually add in some, you know, vitamins to make sure they're meeting their nutrient needs while we teach them how to try new foods. And that can help parents relax a little bit too, right? If they didn't eat dinner, okay, well, at least they had their vitamins. (laughs) They got in a little bit. Yeah.
0: And like you said, going to their regular pediatric checkups, making sure that growth and development are still where they need to be. They're on their curve. I know. And it's hard to argue when they're on their curve and they're growing and developing that, you know, that for the child, well, why do I need to make any changes? Everything is, the doctor said
1: everything is good. So, um, And maybe it is sometimes parents expectations are a little too, too grand, we think kids need more than they need. um, Or they need to eat, you know, like five vegetables a day. But really, if kids eat fruit, they're getting the nutrients they would get from vegetables. (laughs) Not that you should stop offering the vegetables, but you know, they can get the vitamin C and folate, folate from fruit too. So um, I think that often causes parents a lot of anxiety that their kid's not getting enough and maybe they're not. And that's why it's important to work with a registered dietitian to check that out. But maybe they, maybe they are, and you don't have to stress so much.
0: So there is a condition called ARFID. um, And I'm going to let you speak to it because that's basically picky eating on steroids, right? It's an extreme picky eating. So I'd love for you to talk a little bit about what more is ARFID and how do how would a parent know when it's just normal picky eating versus something that needs a little bit more intervention?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, ARFID is avoidant restrictive food intake disorder, and it's not necessarily just in kids; it can happen in adults as well. And it's actually a mental health diagnosis, so it has to be diagnosed by a psychologist. Um, and it is extreme picky eating, so there's some underlying stressor why the person can't eat maybe it's a fear of eating maybe they're terrified of choking for example and often they'll have a very limited diet and there's a newer diagnosis out there called pediatric feeding disorder which I think is a little more encompassing and sometimes um, gets misdiagnosed as our fit. so I think that's why it's important to work with a doctor kind of Or healthcare professional familiar with picky eating uh, feedingmatters.org I think is the website where you can learn about pediatric feeding disorder and they have great articles about ARFID versus PFD or pediatric feeding disorder but when a family should seek help I think they should seek help you know when they're worried that their child's not getting the nutrition they need um, when it's affecting family meal times right like if everybody's stressed out at family meal times if it's really worrying you then I think it's worth getting help, you know, no matter what your child is eating.
0: So let's back up a little bit because that is a term I'm actually not familiar with. Can you tell me more about pediatric feeding disorder?
1: Yeah, pediatric feeding disorder. Um, so yeah, it's di- it was created a year or two ago, I believe this diagnosis because picky eating is so general, right? Like there are all these terms, extreme picky eating, picky eating. So pediatric feeding disorder compa encompasses a few different areas. So if the child's nutrition is affected, so if they're not getting the nutrients they need, um, often again, they'll have sensory sensitivities or maybe um, oral motor issues. So it's more of a multi, takes a multidisciplinary approach again, to look at why this child is having difficult eating. Is it a medical issue? Is it oral motor or sensory? Um, so I think it's a great diagnosis. I Sorry, I don't have it pulled up, otherwise I could <laughs> say okay. word for word exactly what the definition for it is, but it was created by you know a bunch of different disciplines. And I think it's great that it's trying to encourage disciplines to work together because pick eating can be so complicated. And often we do need a team to you know work with the family and work with a child for support. Great. Yeah,
0: no, thank you. I learned something today. I did not know that existed. Great. So Jennifer, can you give us like, what are some of your favorite tips or when it comes to picky eating, what's a great place to start? Um, You know, my kid's not eating, he only eats the same 10 foods. What are some ways that we can, I know you mentioned food chaining and the SOS technique, but what are maybe just some tangible, practical things that a parent could start with right now?
1: Yeah, and SOS and food chaining are probably something most parents would need a little health professional support with, but I would always suggest families start with Ellen Satter's Division of Responsibility, because that's something they can learn about on their own, and they can implement on their own at home. So, you know, look at your roles, the when, the where, the what, and your child's roles, if and the how much, and see if those roles are getting a little bit mixed up. And if you can kind of stay in your lane, you know, and trust your child to stay in their lane. And Ellen Satter's got a lot of great books and websites. So, you know, it's easy to learn about that. And whether your child's a picky eater or not, I think that a lot of those concepts can be useful for all kids and all families.
0: All right. So we start with the division of responsibility. We stay in our lanes. Um, You mentioned some other things like maybe dimming the lights or um, one that I thought was really interesting was making sure that their feet are grounded. Uh, I would not have even thought that that could play a role in in food acceptance, because it feels like it's not connected. Um, What are some of those other little things that make a big difference?
1: Sure. So the footrest, again, very important. I always look at a child's chair if they're coming and going from the table, for example, Another thing you can think about is, we've been talking about sensory and you mentioned the visual sites at the dinner table, but is sensory prep to come to the table? Um, so we wanna make sure the child is in the right the right state to come to the table, to be calm and to be willing to you know learn about foods and try new foods. So we can, I like to do a little bit of a pre-meal routine. So we give our child a five minute warning. Okay, dinner's ready in five minutes. And then we have them um, do some kind of, it's called like proprioceptive or deep work activity because that actually helps to physically calm them down. So maybe it's bear walking to the table, maybe it's doing jumping jacks, maybe it's running around the room three times, maybe it's pushing a stool, you know, to the sink to wash your hands. So some kind of heavy work like that or activity that takes a couple seconds, maybe a minute before they come to the table. And then they come to the table and one, another great thing. I think we all know that breathing helps calm our whole sensory system down. So some families will do a couple deep breaths, but bubbles is a great way to do this too. So maybe you have like actual bubbles at the table and everybody gets to blow bubbles, or we have, you know, a straw in our milk or water, and we blow a couple bubbles in there or take three deep breaths and with that physical activity and that deep breath it just sets them to be in the right state to be more likely to be successful at that meal
0: so are we trying to in my head i'm like this is not the right answer but I'm like are we trying to tire them out before they come to the table so they are a little bit more relaxed instead of bringing all of their their hyperness to the the table is that some of the the thought work behind that
1: yeah, I think that's part of it, but also if you look at it physiologically that that deep muscle work, you know, you think of like a hug or something, it just helps calm us down. So the same thing like bear walking or jumping jacks will will like you said maybe get some of that energy out, but it actually helps calm us down. And then the, the deep breathing um you know definitely helps us relax and um yeah, get get ready for the meal.
0: Yeah. Does the bubbles too maybe provide feeling of playtime ta- playfulness and like exploration so that like this doesn't have to be a an, a time of contention and and challenging each other but this can be a fun experience is that kind of where the bubbles are coming from or it's yeah. more so because of the breath work
1: well both yeah I think that's a great point too and then we want to keep that going throughout the meal um, so if you're Children are verbal or old enough to have a conversation. I try and take the focus off of the food. Don't talk about who's eating what. You can have just conversation starters, right? Or everybody can go around the table saying their highs and lows from the day. Or we have a little cup with little slips, then everybody can pull a slip. Like if you were a superhero, you know, who would you want to be or what superpower would you want just to get people talking and again, create more of that enjoyable mealtime experience. So we all want to be at the table and create some good family bonding and memories instead of (laughs) the alternative.
0: Yeah. Um, and I had one more question and now I just lost it because I was listening to what you were saying. (laughs) Oh no, no, that's, that's not your fault at all. Um, I'll think of it. In a little bit but um no i think these are actually really great tips Are things that we can start with right away um you know and like you said it still goes back to honoring if they want to eat and how much and being able to trust that you know their bodies will also give them information and that we need to trust their bodies to do just that um Dang it, now I just had it came back to me while I was saying that and then I lost it again. Um, uh, I guess it's not meant to be. So um I really want to think of this sentence because I've thought of it twice now. Uh almost. Um all right, I'll have to I'll have to keep thinking.
1: <laughs> Email it to me and add it into the show notes.
0: That's right, <laughs> that's what we'll do. So Jennifer, this is actually a really great conversation. Where can we learn more about about you and some of the services that you offer?
1: Sure. Well, my website is probably the best place to head, which is firststepnutrition.com. And I have a blog there, um, link to my Instagram, as well as a tab with freebies. So you can grab some of my free trainings for picky eaters under age six or over age six or for starting solids if you have a baby at home. Perfect.
0: And while you were saying that, I did remember. So I quick wrote it down. One of my tips, and you can tell me if this is right or wrong, um, is one of the things that I share with my my parents is, you know, try not to label their child as a picky eater, right? Because then it becomes like a self-fulfilling prophecy. They self-identify as a picky eater. And so therefore, they, they start to engage in picky eating behaviors because that's who they believe they are. They stop trying new foods because that's not what a picky eater does. They, they refuse things when they're out in public because that's what a picky eater does. Is that also advice that you give to the parents as well, or is there a different spin on it that might be helpful?
1: Yeah, for sure. I think that is very important not to label your child as a picky eater. And if others do it, for example, grandparents, you can just say, He's not a picky eater. He's learning to like new foods, or something like that. Try and reframe it in a more positive way, because you're right; that will become a self fulfilling prophecy, and they'll take that on as their identity, which we don't want.
0: So little things like right, we don't think of it as. If I hear parents say it all the time, oh, he won't try that. He's a picky eater. I'm like, no, 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 (laughs) don't say that. So, all right. So Jennifer, we're actually gonna close the episode with a recipe. So I'd love for you to share maybe one of your favorites or your go-tos, or even a recipe you may give to your clients when trying to get them to try new foods, whatever you have to
1: share. Sure. Okay, well, I have a very simple recipe today. And I know parents are always trying to get their kids to eat more vegetables. And like we were talking, you can't get your kids to eat anything. But one of the things you can do to make them more likely to choose to eat these vegetables would be to make them tasty, make them easy to eat. So a green vegetable, I chose Brussels sprouts and my family loves Brussels sprouts. If I I just cut them in half, put them on a baking sheet and put little daubs of butter and maple syrup on top of them. <laughs> and then, and then I bake them because I feel like roasting the vegetables, makes them soft. It brings out a bit of natural sweetness. And by adding, you know, a bit of fat and sugar, of course, it's going to make it tasty. Um, yeah. And your kids might be maybe more willing to drive Brussels sprouts cooked like that.
0: I love it. You, that's a great point. I think sometimes in our heads, we think, Oh, I need to get my kid to eat. Brussels sprouts, and they need to be in their most natural form to get all the nutrients. And we're like, you can actually doctor them up and they can still get the nutrients. (laughs) Totally. That's no problem. Great point. All right, Jennifer. Well, thank you so much for being here. I really enjoyed this conversation and I'm so thankful for the work that you're doing.
1: You're welcome. Thanks for having me. It was fun to chat.
0: All right, guys, that's our episode for today. Thank you as always for listening in and we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to the Nourish Eat Repeat podcast. If you found this episode helpful, please rate, review, and share with others so we can reach and help more people. For more information about nutrition, how to work with a dietitian, or about any of our programs, visit our website at bodymetricshealth.com. You can also find us on socials. We're on Instagram and Facebook at bodymetricshealth. The book *Nourish, Eat, Repeat* is available on our website and Amazon in both paperback and ebook versions. Once again, I'm Adrienne Delgado, and I'll see you next week.